I've got some smiles. Morning, everyone. Good to have you with us. If you're a guest, uh, thanks for coming and choosing to hang out with this crazy crew. Uh, my name's Scotty. Uh, I am the guy here that gets the privilege of leading us in our pursuit of Jesus and in our spiritual growth. So thanks for coming and, and, and joining us. You know, when we think about uh, spiritual growth and when you think about your own journey, there's kind of two main paradigms that we think through, right? So you've got one group of people, when it comes to their relationship with Jesus, it's like the radical transformation crew. So like, I hated Jesus, I was running completely completely the opposite direction, my life was a mess, and all of a sudden there's a sudden moment of encounter with Jesus that tra- changes the re- trajectory of their lives, I can't speak this morning, changes the trajectory of their lives and they go running after him in various ways. Um, and then you've got the other camp of people which is, you know, like this slow, steady brewing, like a pot of tea, um, and so it's like you, you kind of grow up in the church and you have like these general little spiritual experiences that all kind of add up uh, towards your pursuit of Jesus. And so some people look back on their life and they can give you the exact day and time that they came to faith and the radical transformation that came. And other people are like, I don't really know. I just kind of kind of stumbled into my faith. And, and sometimes you get the people, I guess, that are in the middle that have some radical stuff and then the slow, steady percolation that goes with it. Um, everyone, when they're walking with Jesus wholeheartedly, has a moment that they can point to in their life um, where whether you were, uh, it was the definitive moment at the beginning that was a radical transformation or whether it was one of the stages on that slow, steady progression, we all have this moment that we point to where somehow uh, God grabbed us in a different way and we made this definitive definitive commitment that I've been walking with you, but now I'm really going to be in. I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to follow you in a more wholehearted way. And uh, what, what, we're going to talk about this, but I want to just share a little bit about my story this morning, because I was one of those slow, steady percolators um, that had some definitive moments in the middle of it. So here, here's a picture. Um, we'll, we'll get to what this is, but this is a picture at home. If you know some of my story, you might understand what the picture is about. Now, I'm one of those people, I grew up attending church. Um, so my family were involved in church. My grandparents were involved in church. We went. Um, my experience as a kid, I don't know if this is how it really went down, but all I have is what I remember. Um, my experience as a kid, we'd go to church. I hated it because it was dull and boring. Uh, I wanted to do cool and exciting and intelligent things in kids' church, and we did things that I found really babyish and patronizing, so I didn't like kids' church either. Um, and then we didn't have any kind of faith expression outside of church. So I don't remember ever seeing someone read a Bible in my house. I don't remember us ever having a conversation about God outside of church, but we went faithfully. And then we were about, uh, I think I was 10 when my family stopped going to church. Uh, Fast forward a couple of years, I'm 11 or 12 years old. I go on a camp. At this camp, they ask us to memorize the greatest commandment. So memorize, uh, the teachers of the law come to Jesus and said, good teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandments than these. I remember that from memorizing it as an 11-year-old. But the deal was, they told you there was a prize if someone stopped you in the corridor and asked you to recite it. If you could, there was candy, there was pencils, 
pencils, erasers, like books. It was like, this, this is legit. And then at the end of the camp, they would pull, pull some people from random, have you stand up on the stage. If you could do it, the prize was epic. I have no idea what it was, but as an 11-year-old, it was epic. It, it was probably candy. Um, but, but that moment did something in me. Like I left wanting to read my Bible, asked my mom if I could own my own Bible. Uh, I left somehow changed, but would stop going to church. So I had no part, uh, no place in my life that would foster that growth. So my mom bought me a Bible. I started reading it. I started at Genesis. I think I got to the first genealogy, which is right at the chapter, right at the beginning. And, uh, and I was like, I'm done. Um, uh, 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 and that was that over. Um, so I... Through school, I wasn't walking with Jesus. We weren't going to church. I didn't have any faith experience. I wasn't doing anything that was particularly crazy. Like I was a straight A student. I was a musician. I was a nice person. I was involved in student government. Like I was just a general nice kid. Um, and then you fast forward. I'm 15 or 16 years old. I'm at a camp. Uh, it's, a, it's a music group. One of our bands that was away for camp at the weekend. I go to this church. Again, I've shared this, some of you have heard this, I still, when I'm over here, and even at home, I'm always like, how did this happen? But we went to this weekend, and for some reason, the entire band had to go to the music teacher's church on Sunday morning, and the church, the inside of the church was probably about the same size as this set of chairs, and it was the worst church I've been in one church worse since, but it's the second worst church I've ever been to in my life. Dull, boring, I'm watching this past minister at the front with his cardigan and his beard, and just like, what is this guy doing? Like, the the church was a joke. I can't go into all the details because there's some... 16-year-old bad language in my head. We're not going to go there today. But I was just like, this is, this, is, this is awful. But somehow, in the middle of this service, as I'm analyzing this dying church and, and thinking, God, like, if you're real, like, this can't be the thing that you want to have happen in that moment. God called me into ministry. Ask me this story later because it's too long to go into now. I had this moment where I felt God say, well, go do differently. If you know this is what it isn't, go do differently. And I had this instant moment where I was like, okay, God is real. His word is true. Jesus died for the sins of the world. The church is his instrument for reaching the world. And this is not what the church is supposed to be. And I left that service trying to figure out, how did you become a minister? Like, I have no idea. Like, I, like, I've been nominally around the church. Like, no, you don't, they don't have classes at school, like, how to become a minister class um, in the Church of Scotland. And I was like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. So, as was my pattern up to that point, like, I get this moment of excitement. It starts to fizzle out a little bit. I got to know some people that were Christians. I started attending three different churches, because that's what you do. So, I'd go to, uh, I would go play organ for mass on a Saturday night, I would go to this crazy, charismatic home church on a Sunday morning, and I'd lose my salvation at Nazarene Church on Sunday evening. And that was my pattern. So it was like, works, works Saturday night, like people rolling around in the Holy Spirit, freaking me out on a Sunday morning, and then losing my salvation at night and crying that I had to re- repent and come back to Jesus or I was going to die and go tell. Um, and so it was a mixed bag. But, but these were all definitive moments in my pursuit of Jesus. And so I applied to go to Bible college to go study uh, to study ministry, I, get, I applied to this course, I get accepted, and right before the course is due to start, it gets, the, the course gets discontinued, and they tell me, sorry, I know you applied for this position, you can't have it. I'm like, uh, okay, what to do now? So what do you do if you're trying to study for ministry as a musician? You do a math degree. 
Just letting you know where my brain was at. I did not know what I was doing and that was torture. Um, but it is the, probably the only degree that could have worked with this because um, Peyton, don't listen. Uh, is there anyone else young in here? Don't, don't, don't replicate what I do. So um, you've heard part of this story before. So I'm in school. It's my second year. Uh, so I'm a sophomore in college and I would wake up in the morning and I'd get the train to Glasgow. So a train from my house into the city center and then a subway from Glasgow city center to Hillhead. And you come out of these doors right under where it says Hillhead. And if you go left just at the end of this building, like, like 20 feet and take a left, that's the pathway to the college, to Glasgow University. And so all first year, I'd jump up, come out of there, go left, hang a left, and go swinging straight to university, a little five-minute walk, and you're there ready for class. But when I came into my second year, I found this uh, green circle to be very, very appealing. And so I'd wake up in the morning, I'd get to the train station, I'd look at that silver bollard, and I'd hang a right, and I'd walk into Starbucks, and I'd go up into the room, and I would skip all my classes. So every day, you could find me sitting in Starbucks, like reading a Bible, reading a book, journaling, hanging out, and just not going to any of the classes that I was supposed to be doing. I would hang out with other friends that were going to their classes, but were on their breaks from their classes. For a whole year, I did that instead of going to class, and almost flunked out of college, and it wasn't very good. But one day, sitting in the Starbucks, I was upstairs, I was minding my own business. <laughs> Actually, no, I wasn't. I was, I was in Starbucks doing what we all do when we're alone in a coffee shop, right? You listen to everyone else. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing some work, I'm reading my Bible, I'm journaling, and all of a sudden, I hear this American accent say, Ephesians. And I'm like, they're American, and that's clearly a Bible thing. So I, I like crouch down in the seat, and I'm have my head between the two ch- the, the chairs that are there and I'm listening in because there's this group of like 12 or 13 Americans having this conversation and I was like, this is fascinating. They, they'd all read the book of Ephesians and were talking about it and some of the points were interesting. So I, I'm sitting there totally eavesdropping, thinking I'm being very subtle. Turns out it was very obvious to all of them that I was completely listening in on everything. Um, but at one point as they're, they're having a break, some people go to the bathroom, some people go to grab coffee. This one guy is walking over and I'm like, oh, I totally know him from somewhere. So I'm like, hey, like how do I know you I know you from somewhere and I spark up this conversation with this guy called Brian uh, and and we run through every church that I've ever attended every ministry that I've ever been a part of every person I know every place in Glasgow that I ever go and like at the end of the conversation he's like yeah uh, you've never met me before I'd remember and I'm like, okay, this is totally awkward. Bye. Uh, so, so I leave feeling rather awkward and uncomfortable. And then the next week, I'm skipping the same class. I'm sitting in the same seat in Starbucks. I'm in the middle of something. And I just feel a shoulder tap me on the back. And I turn around, and it's this guy, Brian. And he says, did you ever figure out where you knew me from? And I was like, yes, the swimming pool at the university gym. And he goes, yeah, I've never swam there in my life. And I was like... Well, I guess, I guess I don't know you, so sorry. And he says, you know, I've been praying about you every day this week, and I'm 100% convinced that God set this up, and this is God's way of saying I should take some time to get to know you. And so how do you feel about like, me discipling you? How do you feel about meeting regularly for coffee? You seem to be here at this time every week. Is this a good time? And I look at my class schedule, and I'm like, yep, this is definitely a good time. I hate this class. <laughs> 
and so we started a week later. He goes, go home, read the book of Genesis, come back, let's talk. So we met the next week. We talked about Genesis. He sent me away, read the book of Exodus. Let's talk next week. And each week we'd read a book of the Bible and we'd get together and talk. And eight weeks later, we planted a church together because God had called him there to plant a church and he was praying that God would bring him someone local to help him in that process. In the process of meeting with this guy, he would say that there were several phrases that he would use all the time. But at the end of the day, he would look at me and ask me, like, are you willing to lay down your life fully for Jesus? Are you willing to count the cost of what it means to live with him? Because you can rhyme off churches, you can rhyme off ministries, there's things you've done. But it's really clear that you're walking with feet in both, both sides. And if you're going to do this with me, if you're serious about Jesus and you're serious about this work that we're called to, you've got to lay it all down and you've got to live your life differently. Um, and if you're going to do this thing with me, you've got to change the way that you're living your life and you've got to give your life fully to him. Um, th- that season took me from this meandering Christian to this call, have I truly laid down everything? He would always ask me, are you willing to do whatever God wants, whenever he wants, or whatever the cost? Are you willing to give it all to him? And I'd realized that up till that point, no one had ever asked me that question. And no one had ever told me that that's what our faith is about. I thought it was you just assented to your belief in Jesus. You didn't go to hell at the end and you tried your best to be a good person in the middle. Go to church, do what they ask. Um, this call to lay it down. I, I can fast forward from there to um, a few years later. I came over here to school. I met my wife, lots of good things there. Fast forward to a time when I was diagnosed with cancer. I can think about moments in, in the middle of a cancer diagnosis um, where I had to relay other parts of my life down to the Lord. Like, if I'm going to die, like, do I trust you with that? If this is going to leave me disfigured, am I going to trust you with that? If my life is going to comp- be completely different after that? I can think of painful ministry transitions I can think of going to India and work that's happened there. All of these significant moments. But the one that stands out above them all was this person that looked me in the eye and said, are you willing to lay down everything for Jesus? And are you willing to leave this place a different person and live in a different way? You know, all of us, uh, no one's in the room by accident, right? No, No one walks in the doors of a church by accident. <laughs> I, I guess, I get, well, no, they don't. <laughs> even uh, the, the male woman that comes in every week to use our facilities she's not coming in by accident God knows so no one walks in these doors uh, by accident we're all on a spiritual journey in, of varying degrees uh, and the question that I want you to sit with as we go through the rest of the content this morning the question is this on that journey from figuring out your way to Jesus, to fully laying your life down and living every moment of every day in complete surrender to him, where are you? Because the reality is, even as a pastor, I am still trying to learn how to lay down every moment of every day to him. There's no one in the room that's laying down every moment of every day to him. So where are you on that spectrum? Can you think of seasons in your life like mine that were definitive moments where you were called to something greater and you gave another part of your life to him? Are you in one of those seasons right now or are you like a large part of my journey going through motions with a heart sort of oriented towards him and trying a little bit but distracted by a lot of other things? Where are you on that journey? 
We're in this series right now called What's in a Name. We're in a, a, a season of the life of the church where we're trying to rediscover identity. We're looking ahead to a new name that God wants to give to our church. And so um, in the last sermon, so I guess during this series, we're looking at the biblical significance of this word arise to see does this fit who we are and what God's calling us to do. Last week, we looked at the word as it appeared in Nehemiah 8. And, and we use this, this phrase, liminal space, like arise was this liminal space between being bowed down on your knee before Jesus and then getting up to go do the work that he's called us to do in this in, internal like transitionary period in between. This week, I want to look at the word arise in Matthew chapter 9 um, as it is a deliberate act of obedience for the follower of Jesus. And we could go further to say the, the, the main response Uh, that we're called to in a relationship with Jesus. So I want to look at Matthew 9. We're going to start at verses 9 to 14. Um, This story also appears in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. So you you may want to look there at some point as well. Um, But what I want you to do as I read it, I want you to see if you can figure out where the word appears in here. Um, So this is Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Did you notice where the word was in there? Let's pull up the first verse again. Um, You didn't notice it, obviously, because it's translated slightly differently. The word for horizon here is a statement uh, that Matthew got up. So I want to, before we look at this in more detail, I just want to remind us, who's Matthew? So Matthew is one of the disciples. He's the one that penned Matthew's gospel that we're getting this passage from. And the passage is really clear. If you read the, the, the Luke account, it gives us his Hebrew name. So his Hebrew name was Levi. His Greek, or his Greek name was Matthew. Um, so Levi, son of Altheus, also called Matthew. So he's this guy. He's a tax collector sitting at a tax collector's booth. Um, do you remember the significance of being a tax collector? Why does this matter? Um, a tax collector um, is someone who is a person living in compromise. So you've got a Jewish man. What's the purpose of the, the Jewish, or what's the calling of the Jewish people? To live according to the law. And part of what the law is asking them to do is live in a particular way that separates them from the practices of the nations roundabout. So we're going to live distinct from the Gentiles and we're going to follow a very specific code that is going to bring you holiness in your relationship with the Lord. Um, and so a lot of what they do and a lot of the additional rabbinical tradition that came up around the law were all of the extra things that they did to make sure that they didn't ever compromise with someone out there who did things differently. So you've got this guy, Matthew, who is uh, 
cooperating with the oppressive Roman government to tax the people. So this is someone that's quite happy to compromise. I'm a, I'm a Jewish person, but I'm willing to go over there and work with them. Tax collectors historically were known for being a little bit corrupt. So with the government, they would say, you owe us this amount of taxes. All of the tax collectors would go and say, they would bid on the job. So I will, I will give you, I will work for this amount of money. I'll work for this amount of money. And usually the Romans would take the most trustworthy person with the least amount of cost to them. And then the tax collectors would bump up the taxes in order to pocket a healthy living for themselves. So you get this guy, probably motivated by greed, um, compromising with the oppressive government, and in many senses doing things that are questionable in the eyes of the Jewish people. This is Matthew, just, just with that image in mind, just remember, the guy that wrote the first gospel, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know about you, that, that fills me with some hope. <laughs> there's hope for me because um, there's hope for Matthew. But in this moment, we've got this moment where Jesus walks up and sees this person, Jesus the Jew, walks up to this person who's compromising with the oppressive government, looks at him and gives him this invitation, come and follow me. And what's Matthew's response? How does the passage describe his response? Matthew arose and followed So what's the step that we have to take if we're going to follow Jesus? What's the step that we have to take in order to respond to his invitation to follow? I mean, right now, we're all sitting down except me. Maybe I'll do this. We're all sitting down. So the response, if we want to get up and follow him where he's going to take us, is we've got to get up off of our derriere uh, and be ready to follow him where it is that he's calling us to go. So in this verse, this is the first point I want to say this morning. As we look at this word arise, what's the significance? Arise is the first action of those who are called to follow. The obvious questions that arise, pun intended. (laughs) Uh, Oh, come on. My kids would laugh at that dad joke. So the dads in the room at least should have laughed at it. Uh, The obvious questions that arise, will I respond to his voice? Will I respond to his voice? Will I follow where he leads me? Okay, we're gospel 101 right now. Will I respond to the voice of God? Will I follow where he leads me? And this is not on the first day of our salvation journey. This is not day one, like I've given my life to Jesus, I've decided I'm him, like I've responded to the voice, I'm a follower of Jesus. This is a daily question, will I respond to his voice right now? Will I follow where he leads me today? Um, Most invitations in scripture, most of the things we're called to in our faith are not one-time events. We're called to be baptized, but we're called to live into our baptism every day. We're called to lay down our life, but we're called to do it every day. We're called to take up our cross, but we're called to do it every day. We're, we're, called, we're labeled sanctified, but we're called to live into our sanctification. This call to arise, the call to listen and to respond is a, is a one-time event, and there are moments in our life that are significant definers of that, and then there are daily moments as we walk into that. What, what does this mean for our church? So if we were looking at this word as the name for the church, what would that mean for us as a community? What would it mean in your own life? What would it mean as we do this together? 
Are you willing to make this call to arise a priority for yourself? Are you willing to work at learning to hear his voice with clarity? Uh, learning to understand his word with clarity? And are you willing to follow wherever it is he may ask you to go? And usually it's not what you want, right? Just being honest. Um, are you willing to follow where he leads? And are we willing to do this as a church? Are we willing for ourselves to prioritize the work of learning to hear his voice and know his word and follow where he leads? And are we willing as a church to prioritize not our education, not worship that we enjoy, but how we equip one another to be active out in the world, calling other people to arise, teaching them to hear his voice and follow him where he leads. If this is a word we're going to do, then that's the commitment that we're being called into. Are you having these moments? Can you look at recent events in your life Let's say in the last week, can you point to something definitive in the last week where you can say, God directed me, I I received his word, and I've acted on it. Because if we're following Jesus, we should be able to say that happened today. (laughs) Are you having recent moments like this, or is there more work to do? Let me look at a verse just prior to this, because I think it's it's really reassuring to reframe some of what I've already said. Just jumping back into verses three and four of the same chapter. It says, at this, some teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. So they're listening to Jesus declaring that someone's sins are forgiven. This little line, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? As Jesus calls to Matthew and says, follow me, and Matthew rises up to go, just prior to this, the, the very paragraph before is letting us know that Jesus is the person, when he walks in the room, knows every evil thought of the people that are in front of him. So when Jesus looks at Matthew and says, follow me, he's not looking at Matthew and going, this guy's got his life together and is worthy of, my, of being my follower. He's not saying this guy has his life walking in purity, and so he's going to be the kind of person that can come follow me. God knows the wickedness. He knows the compromise. He knows the greed. And in that place, looks at Matthew in the face and says, follow me. And I've got to believe that something in the gaze of Jesus that looked at Matthew and let Matthew know that Jesus sees all of who I am and still wants me to follow is at least part of why Matthew steps up and arises and goes and does what he's called to. Jesus doesn't call us by accident. He isn't surprised when we get it wrong. Uh, he, he, he is not unaware of the things in your life that you've been hiding from everybody. He knows them. He knows parts of you that you've never shared. He wants to use you to transform those things. So this call to arise, church, what is your response in general, to the invitations of God. There's a lot of ways this go. Are we going to be people who arise, or are we going to be the kind of people who dig in our heels and grumble? Because the Israelites did a really great job of that in the wilderness, right? They were masters of digging in and grumbling. Are we going to be the kind of people that sit around and analyze and research and study and never actually get around to doing the things that he's called us to do? Will we arise or will we continue to do our own thing because we think we know better how to do the work that God's called us to do? Are you going to arise 
or are you gonna stay right where you are because the pleasure is too good and the cost is too high? If we're saying this is a word we want for our church, we are saying we're committed to diving all in to the things that he's calling us to do. And then Garai's as the first response of our faith is something that we see so clearly in the image of baptism. What happens in baptism? You give your life to Jesus when you have committed to him and you're willing to walk in his way. We take this step that says, I'm gonna die to self and I'm gonna walk with him. And in, in the baptism act, someone places us under the water. The water is it's a tomb made of water. We die in the water. We're dead to self. We're dead to our own preferences, to the things of the world. And we come out of the water a new person. What does this person have to do to go from baptism to following Jesus wholeheartedly? They have to rise out of the water and go do the things that he's called them to do. The image of rising up. And arising is the first step, whether it's the moment Jesus calls us, whether it's in baptism or whether it's in our retirement trying to figure out how to follow him. It's central to how we do it. (laughs) Point number two. The second aspect of the word arise that we see in this passage is this arises both a heart posture and a physical action. I pause and I laugh because this is extremely convicting and very hilarious. So the verse in here, I've put it from Hosea rather than the the verse. So in the passage, uh, Jesus looks at the religious leaders and he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So this is the passage in Hosea 6 that he quotes. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. In a book that's talking about the fact Israel has been prostituting themselves with other, other gods. They've been unfaithful to God and chasing after the things of the world. So he's saying, he's, what he's not saying in the passage is don't offer sacrifices anymore uh, in, in Hosea. He's not saying to the people of Israel, don't offer your sacrifices anymore. Don't give me the burnt offerings that I command. He's saying you're still supposed to do those things, but you're missing the point. There is an ethos and an ethic of the kingdom of God that you don't understand. And when I am the king in charge of the kingdom, mercy is the posture that we're supposed to take in the world. So you're so busy people, uh, and chasing after these far, foreign gods and, and giving yourself to money and separatism. He's like, I want you to be merciful to the poor. I want you to love the people around about you. Why do I find this funny? So this passage is saying, first of all, this is not the funny part. Passage is saying there is an act that you should do, but there's a heart that you should have in the process. And if you do the actions without the right heart, it doesn't bring honor to God. I think this is the Western church. You've heard me say this before. We are very good at trying to do the right things with the worst heart possible. When I read descriptions of how the world views the church, hypocritical, bigoted, like judgmental, like separatist, I'm like, these are not like, we're, uh, yeah, anyway. Why I love this passage is, did you notice who he's talking to and what he said? The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the ones who have the entire Old Testament memorized and are charged with teaching it to people, the ones who work alongside the priest to enact the sacrifices, who are calling people to repentance, 
They're the experts in the law of God. Those people, Jesus looks at and goes, you should go learn the Bible. Like, go back to the scriptures and learn this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You know, some of us in the room, Jesus couldn't say this to us. He'd have to say, go start reading the Bible. Some of us don't know the meaning of scripture because we don't have a habit of reading it. If the Bible is God's word, put down in this book so that we can open it and read it and understand it at any moment, hear the voice of God whenever we want. If we believe he's the creator of the universe, that he's given us his word, why on earth do we not read it? Why do we not prioritize the disciplines needed to rest in this all the time? Do you have a steady diet of getting in God's word to hear his voice? Some in the room don't know the meaning of scripture because you've spent so much time reading the Bible through such a narrow lens that you miss what most of it is trying to say. That was the Pharisees' problem. They had such a narrow way of interpreting the scriptures that Jesus was constantly pulling them up. You don't know what the word says. You're putting these heavy burdens on people and not lifting a finger yourself. Is your... Is your lens too narrow? Are you reading your own viewpoints into scripture instead of allowing God to teach you how it should be? Some of us, we read them, but we don't care about doing what they say. It's just a lot easier to have the convicting moment and then go on with life as normal instead of doing the things that God is calling us to do. Arise as a posture is about being open and teachable and ready. It's about knowing his word and being ready to respond to it. It's about coming to him, willing to have him show us a different way. If we're going to be a church that takes this as our name, we are committing to being open and teachable and ready to do the things he's calling us to do. Final point. Arise lets Jesus determine our priorities. When you read the story, Matthew has his priorities as a tax collector. He's got a job to do. He likes money. He likes the status. He's probably in pursuit of the good life. God says, Jesus says to him, leave that and come follow me. His priorities are changed in an instant. Jesus is having a meal with Matthew's friends, tax collectors and and quote unquote sinners who all have priorities. I imagine it's a room full of normal people. They want to care for the kids. They want to provide a good education. They want food on the table. They want to own a little bit of land and just get a step up. They want to be a good Jew and a responsible citizen. They're hoping to have a good family and good friends. They're normal people with priorities. Matthew's decision to follow brings Jesus into their lives in order to reorient them. The religious leaders had their priorities. Let's tithe and sacrifice and say our big prayers. We're going to teach. We're going to separate from the world. We're going to be distinct. We're going to be honored. And I'm sure in there was love for God and love for his word and love for the tradition and the ritual and their place in society. But Jesus coming into the scene calls them to reprioritize. You've got all of that stuff. What does he say? Go and learn this scripture. Reprioritize what you're studying. Stop focusing on the right and wrong. Go show mercy to the people that need mercy. 
Matthew called Jesus to, uh, Jesus called Matthew to follow, Matthew arose. In that moment, he began the process of permitting Jesus to rearrange all of the priorities in his life. It didn't happen overnight. It's not like he woke up or he stood up out of that seat and miraculously every priority was the way it should be. But he began the process of allowing God to rearrange those priorities. What determines your priorities? Who dictates what is important and what isn't? Is it your family? Is it your work? Is it the pursuit of money? Is it your nationality, your politics? What is it that determines your priorities? We're called when we arise to put Jesus above everything. Jesus over the desires of our family. Jesus over the demands of our work. Jesus over the pursuit of possessions, our nationality, our politics, our sports teams, our video games, our fantasy novels, our home improvement projects. Jesus over all of those. We're all following something. And we're all a bit syncretistic in how we do it. So for most of us in the room, we're here following Jesus and something. So the question is, what is this something that you're allowing to set your priorities over what Jesus is calling you to? Is it a person and what they say? Is it a set of doctrines that you hold to? Is it a particular pastor and his teachings? Is it political affiliations? Is it your nationality, your state, the place that you live? What is it that you're blending your faith with? And if Jesus calls you to walk away from it, are you willing? Are you willing? The passage gives this very pointed example of changed priorities. And I think this passage still condemns and convicts and challenges us today. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors, some Bibles put quotes around sinners, and quote-unquote sinners, came and ate with him and his disciples. Jesus' priority was not the priority of the religious people, and not what our priorities often look like today. Jesus' priority was the needy. Go show mercy to the needy. He tells them it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. It's not the righteous that I came to call, but it's the sinners. And so in his work on earth, he was constantly crossing barriers to reach and minister to the needy. And what I find, it really doesn't matter where I go in the world, but I see it most in the Western world, we prioritize the comfortable religious people and not the needy. We get with the people that share our values, that love the Bible. We sit in a room together. We criticize the world. We rejoice in the ways God is working. We love his word. We study it. We talk about it. Meanwhile, out there, the needy are are in need, and we ignore them because we're too busy filling our time with the churchy stuff. I think it's amazing in this passage that as the Pharisees are coming and going, why does your teacher eat with those people? Does he not know who they are? Compromisers, greedy, like they're, they're compromised Jews. Does he not get it? Jesus doesn't care. Jesus is not concerned about how good he looked. Who are the tax collectors and sinners today? Think about the people that the Pharisees wanted to be around. 
then think about all the people that Jesus spent time with that they weren't happy about. The tax collectors, the lepers, the sexually broken, the adulteresses, the... Where are you unwilling to go? Who are the people that God may want to reach out to in need, but you're like, they're not my people. I would never go there. Who are the people that you're like, if I went to that group of people and hosted a dinner party in my house, what would the people at church think? Who are those people? Because that's where Jesus is in this moment. The tax collectors, the sinners, the adulterers. Are you unwilling to give up? Matthew gave up the wealth and the status to follow Jesus. Eventually gives up his life for Jesus. What are the things that you look at in your life? I would never give that up for Jesus. In this country, there's things like I would never give up being a Democrat. I would never give up being a Republican. I would never give up being a teacher. I would never give up being a... We've got our things. Are there anything in your life that you'd be unwilling to give up? And who are you unwilling to associate with? What if those people out there who are the people you would never want to associate with, what if when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, that's exactly where the harvest is plentiful and exactly where the laborers are few and exactly where we need to go as a church if we want to see people come into the kingdom of God and have their lives radically transformed the way ours have been. Where are you unwilling to go? I want to finish with some very specific application points. I'll call it that. right? Here's your application points for this week to consider. The first one is this. Why to take some time and list out the key arise moments from your life. So what are the key moments where you had those follow me invitations and you made a marked difference in what you were doing in your life in order to align your faith with the teaching of Jesus? And once you've made that list, share it with someone. Some places we call this sharing your testimony, but I want it in a slightly different form. But where are these moments where you've stepped up and are they recent and are they frequent enough? The second thing, reflect. Where is Jesus inviting you to arise in this season of your life? It's not all the same. We don't do it once and come to him and now we just kind of plod forward. God has something specific for you today. There are people he is trying to get you to reach out to. There are things he's trying to get you to shed. Um, So what is he inviting you to respond to? Where are you going to arise in this season? Whether that's um, as a young adult trying to figure out your career, whether that's as a retired person trying to figure out what retirement looks like and how I serve him in this season. What's God calling you to as as an at-home mom trying to raise kids um, or as a newly married person trying to figure out life together? What is he calling you to arise to in this season? And then the last one is the hardest one. And the biggest challenge, host a barrier crossing meal this summer just to bless people that don't know him, not hoping to get anything in return. So if Jesus was here saying, hey, I want to meet your people. I want to meet the people from your life that don't know me. 
and want to meet the people that you interact with, do you have people? Who would the people be? So I want you to just picture them standing in front of you right now and saying, Kathy, I want to meet your people, right? Trudy, I want to meet your people. Kimmy, I want to meet your people. Who are the people that don't know him? And just invite them over for a meal. You don't have to preach the gospel at them. Just have them in your house. Host a meal simply to bless them. And ask God, like it was with Matthew. Matthew brought Jesus with him. You bring Jesus with you. Where are you going to go to find them? Get them in a room together and ask God to move. May we be a church who is committed to responding to the voice of God, who cross barriers in his name, and who are active and effective at introducing quote-unquote sinners to the source of abundant life. Let me pray. God, you know every thought in our heart. Dennis 6, 5 says, you know the inclinations of the thoughts of mankind's heart and it's only evil all the time. You know what goes on inside of us. You know the ways that we reject you. You know the ways we prioritize other things over you. We, you know the ways that we sit back in complacency. You know the ways we compromise and buy into the things of the world. You know, is the way, you know the ways we look just like the world rather than like your people. And you know all the ways we find our identity in all of those things. And yet you called us. Because there's nothing we can do that can separate us from you because you already know the extent of our depravity. Thank you for calling us to you. God, help us to respond accurately to that calling by arising into what it is that you have for us. God, would you make us more effective at hearing your voice so that we will follow? Would you help us to take the things that we're unwilling to lay down and to cast them at your feet? Lord, for some of us, we're so blind to it, we don't even realize what they are. So would you open our eyes to see, reveal our brokenness, reveal our idols, reveal our unwillingnesses, And then would you lovingly and graciously help us to pry open our fingers and drop at your feet. God, help us to be people that are obedient day in, day out as we respond to your invitation. And it's not just so we can do things that you tell us, but the reward is abundant life and wholeness and fruit and transformation as we do the work that you've called us to. So God, may we be a church that's committed to hearing your voice and responding. May we be effective at crossing boundaries in your name. And would you use us to introduce those who don't know you to the source of life so that your kingdom grows, that your worship is expanded and that there are more laborers for the harvest field. So send us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.